All right, Oliver, stay muted for a minute. Uh, just while I do the intro, so there's no mic noise. Um, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a guy who does some stuff, such as podcasting, blocked and reported. I have a newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com, and I host this fine program. And today, we are joined by a very special guest. Oliver Traldi is a philosopher, a PhD student at Notre Dame, very good follow on Twitter. I think that's where we first met. Um, we met in person a couple times. Uh, Oliver, say hi to the group. Hey, hey everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm Oliver. Uh, I'm here at Notre Dame finishing up my PhD. Uh, and I uh, got my Twitter account at Oliver Traldi, and I write for some magazines sometimes as well. That you do. You write very nicely for them. Um, yeah, I, I got to know Oliver um, – He's just he's just a very smart guy on Twitter. He's he's in philosophy, which the the public facing social media uh, incarnation of philosophy I, I think has some of the same problems media Twitter has, and there is a lot of like seeking out wrong think. Oliver, you can tell me if you disagree with any of this. There is not a huge amount of tolerance for differences of opinion on certain subjects, so. I mean, I guess that's my first question, Albert. Do you agree with that that diagnosis? Because I've seen you – to me, you model the way to like respectfully and carefully disagree with people. I was just rereading your review of Jason Stanley's book on fascism, and which uh, ran in commentary, which I think is a good example of that. Um, but my sense is on Twitter, philosophers, some of them at least, it's not always the most friendly climate. Yeah, so uh, I guess I should say I can't take too much credit. You know, I definitely lose my temper sometimes, definitely get a little snippy or insulting sometimes. Um, but, yeah, you know, when when you suggested this to me, I was kind of thinking that there's probably a lot of similarities between philosophy, Twitter, and, and journalism or media Twitter. You know, you have a, uh, a lot of young people. You know, for us, it's graduate students. And in media, I guess it's kind of, you know, young young cub reporters or or take artists or whatever who are kind of in yeah associate editors or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who are kind of in more precarious positions and also have more of the kind of, you know, late millennial, early zoomer, uh, progressive politics a lot of the time. And that, that combination of precarity and, uh, this kind of aggressive call out, uh, cancel type politics, um, leads to some of these dynamics, I think. Um, and kind of like with media, you know, in philosophy, there's there's this kind of critical mass of people who just don't engage with the social media at all and are kind of just kind of like investigative reporters, you know, whatever the philosophical equivalent of that is, you know, people who are doing their modal logic or whatever in the background without ever without ever opening Twitter. Um, Healthy people. Yeah, exactly. Normal people, not like us. Um for, You know, for better or for worse. Yeah, I've talked to some philosophers who, like, have told me, they open Twitter and they're just like, holy shit, why would anybody uh, want to be a part of this? And I think there's maybe a pluralistic ignorance thing going on where uh, I know, I definitely know the views of like the median Twitter philosopher because they're not shy about them. They tend to agree with one another. Uh, same in journalism. But I'm, I'm not sure like these are actually that popular views. And I think this thing they've pulled off of being able to pretend these are the only views you could have while, while remaining a respectable or moral person. Um, it hasn't been great for journalism and I'm guessing it's not great for philosophy or for open philo philosophical inquiry. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. Although there's also, you know, along the lines of what I was saying before, there's also, you know, there's there's a kind of wide swath of philosophy that's kind of untouched by this stuff. Um, but I think similar again, similar to journalism, there's also in the background there's sort of market forces which are pushing people towards this stuff. So when you have the, um, just like you know, in media you see advertisements for, you know, we need somebody on the. We're hiring like 10 new people on the race beat. You know, we're hiring 10 new people on the gender beat or whatever. Um, when you look at what philosophy departments are hiring for, it's, a you know, often a lot of that kind of stuff. More recently, it's, uh, you know, AI ethics, very hot. Um, you have algorithmic bias and things like that. Um, and so the people who kind of just keep their heads down and do their work uh, are often not going to make it in the field at the moment. So you have to kind of, you have to kind of figure out a way to, often to make your work relevant uh, to some of these trends um, and, and to have something to say about these trends. And so, uh, you know, you can do that in the sort of popular dominant way, which is what you often see a lot of on philosophy Twitter, or you can do that in the, you know, opposing that in various ways, which is what I do, um, which leads to a certain amount of disapprobation uh, from fellow philosophers. That's a very polite way of putting it. Um, I guess so. It's it's that question of like whether or not your Twitter persona helps you in the long run, you know, secure one of the few vanishingly small jobs in philosophy. My sense is a lot of young philosophers, maybe some of it is just like them projecting their own frustration and fear out into the world, but there seems to be the belief that if you have a swashbuckling, fuck all you fascist attitude on Twitter, this makes you more attractive, perhaps as a thinker or a job candidate, um, which is weird to me because when I see people adopt that stance, it makes them, me trust their intellect less because it's like, if this is how they present themselves, I'm not sure I can trust them to think rigorously. Do you think people are mistaken in thinking that that, that kind of stance will help them in the long run? Or is it hard to say? I think what, what helps people is, is writing on hot topics, um, is writing actual philosophical work on trendy topics. So I think that, um, it's very easy with this political stuff to look uh, dumb. And I probably look dumb, you know, my, my share of the time as well when I'm talking about it. And so I think that, you know, people who go overboard with this stuff on social media end up, uh, do end up doing themselves a disservice if it's kind of viewed by possible future employers. Um, but I, I do think that the, you know, the professionalization is kind of, is kind of in the background. I think that what's in the foreground is often the more kind of immediate uh, social networky type elements, right? Where I mean, you have these kind of flashpoint, you know, things that come up, a paper is published that some people like, or some people don't like, and then somebody says something about it and immediately kind of the battle lines are drawn and people kind of organize themselves into who's going to make fun of what. Right. Um, and I think that that, that is not done out of any like desire to, you know, out of any conscious plan for, Oh, this is going to look good for my job prospects. That's done out of, you know, desire to fit in or desire to kind of one up your friends and, and how much you can be mean to your enemies and stuff like that. Um, I, for, for me, like a formative moment was covering the Hypatia scandal, which was yeah, um, of course, yeah. philosopher named Rebecca Tuval Tuval uh, wrote a piece basically arguing that, the arguments we use to accept transgender identities could be used to accept transracial identities. I more or less have that right, right? She wasn't she wasn't even explicitly endorsing transracial identities. She's just say basically like asking 
where's the gap here? Why wouldn't we use these same arguments to accept uh, transracial identities? Yeah, uh, in that paper, she wasn't explicitly endorsing it, but she does. I mean, having talked to, you know, uh, I know her pretty well now, and she is, she just straight up is a believer in transracialism. You know, at the time, it was very odd. There, there were a lot of people who took the paper to be like, uh, you know, what in philosophy we'd call a modus tollens or a reductio ad absurdum, some sort of argument where you say, well, if you were to accept transgender identities, you would have to accept transracial identities, but obviously that's ridiculous. So you shouldn't accept transgender identities, right? But it she went the other way. Not, she said we should. Yeah, she was going the other way. She was saying, why not accept transracial identities? And an important part, you know, all, all of these issues, there's, there's one thing I've come to appreciate recently is that there's kind of multi-front, you know, academic discourses on them. So Alex Byrne had his paper on pronouns that a lot of people made fun of on Twitter without necessarily explaining what exactly they hated about it. Um, Kathleen Stock had a paper about uh, sexual orientation. So there's a kind of academic debate about uh, what counts as a sexual orientation and what the kind of, which the kind of sexual orientations are. Um, and then what Tuvel was really doing, and she explained this later in a, in a blog post, she was really concerned with what we ought to do, right? The question of how should we treat people who claim to be of a different race than we might think, um, who identify as a different race than we might think. Um, so she's not necessarily concerned with the question of what is race, what race are people actually, but more with the question of how should we treat each other, right? So often in the gender debate, it's, it's boiled down to this question of what is a woman? Who are the women, right? Do we, you know, do we stick with, you know, the kind of gender critical uh, adult human female definition? Do we open it up a certain amount? Do we open up further? Do we do, you know, do we want to do away with the term? entirely um but that wasn't really what tuvel was doing tuvel was making this ethical argument so there's in philosophy there's all these kind of different ways to address uh these sorts of issues which is part of part of what makes them um kind of so so hot you know like basically any area of philosophy you can kind of torque it so that you can find something that you can possibly publish about one of these debates gotcha yeah, it, it was striking because it, whatever whatever her paper was, it, it was not a train wreck. You could pretty logically follow her argument and you could disagree with it. But watching professional philosophers, I think mostly younger ones, um, one described her argument as violent. There was a lot of straightforward lying about what she had said, or at least a lot of confusion about what she'd said. And I think what you're saying about some of stocks and byron's work it's the same thing people instantly have to have a negative reaction about it on twitter without reading it because because reading it maybe wouldn't be convenient because then you'd have to respond to some actual arguments but i guess it's just hard for me to understand how like good philosophy can get done under such circumstances because i i increasingly feel it's hard for good journalism to get done by anyone who's on twitter and cares about twitter but i guess part of what you're saying is that i'm only seeing this very angry tip of an iceberg and and under the waves as it were there's all sorts of standard philosophy going on as normal by people who just have better social media habits yeah so th there is there is plenty of other work although you know decreasingly because just because of the the way the academic job market works um but i also think you know there's a certain kind of skill and i'm sure that you felt this you have to you know and it's not something that i was a natural at but i started to get a little bit better at kind of 
learning how to tune it out, right? Learning how not to, not to let my interest in going along with people or going against people or whatever, you know, my, my contrarian or conformist, however I'm feeling on a particular day, not to let that kind of push me in, in any particular direction on philosophical issues. Um, so, but I, I guess I would say that in, in general, when, when you look at these really hot button things, it is the case that on either side of them, um, it's hard. The work usually isn't necessarily, um, yeah, it's not necessarily of the most like philosophically deep or rigorous quality. Um, and, uh, so I, I do often think philosophers should just be kind of a little more self-aware about what's leading them to produce good work, how they should be, you know, spending their attention. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll never publish about any of these issues, I think, um, directly at least, um, in, in philosophy journals, just because, uh, like I said, I think it's like you said, really, um, it, it's hard to focus on them. It's hard to, it's hard to get good work done and the kind of possibility of, um, an ensuing kind of firestorm, like the one that Tuvel, I mean, Tuvel actually had several, um, but the possibility of an ensuing firestorm, uh, really makes it hard to think, um, for me. At least. That's a good way to put it. Anyone who wants to jump in the queue, if you have any question or comment, feel free. I mean, I have plenty to ask. Uh, I'll get to you guys in a sec. Um, the one thing I want to ask you about, actually, let's break it up with the question, then I'll get back to the gender stuff for a minute. Uh, ZXCAABB, whatever your name is, go ahead. Hello? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to ask, so I think part of a lot of stuff on, on online is kind of asking, why do our enemies do what they do? What, why do the people who are sort of these woke skull type philosophy people do what they do? What I'm wondering is, why do you think the people like us do what we do? Like, what's the motivation for someone to be sort of a countercultural type person? Is it truly like altruistic, or is it something else going on? No, uh, I don't think I don't think uh, anti woke people are. I think there are plenty of altruistic woke people who really, really think they're doing the right thing, and maybe due to, um, you know, it could just be reasonable disagreement, um, or it could be due to the you know a kind of certain atmosphere that they haven't encountered uh good counter arguments and i certainly think that there's a lot of anti-woke people so you know one kind of motivation is just kind of pure contrarianism and that's something i certainly have you know when i go into a room and everybody's agreeing about something i just you know i want to i want to break it up a little bit right i want to shake things up a little bit um i hate when things feel like everybody agrees when it feels like there's groupthink going on you know just a kind of aspect of my personality and it's also true that you know in the anti-woke sphere people have started to do pretty well just as there's you know people win prizes for their woke scholarship and woke journalism right ibram kendi won this macarthur grant somehow um and there's starting to be people who are who are benefiting in various ways from from doing anti-woke stuff i would say that i in a lot of ways benefited from being anti-woke um, you know, I gained this, this audience, um, and I made a lot of friends and just from kind of saying things that seem pretty straightforward to me, I get people calling me brave, which is certainly false, but feels really good. How, what, so what's your, what, this is an annoying question, maybe akin to asking someone to define a woman on the spot, but what's your, what's your working definition of woke that you think is useful enough for our purposes? Oh man, a working definition of woke. Um, 
Good question. So uh, I'm not sure I'm going to have <laughs> you know it when you um, see it. Yeah, I feel to an extent like I know it when I see it. Um, and I, I also think that, um, you know, Wesley Yang has like this term successor ideology and, you know, there's postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever, all these terms. I, I feel like there is this trend, right? People change their views. Here's something that I've liked recently, even though I think it has its flaws as well, but... Elon Musk tweeted about this, and then Mark Andreessen picked it up, this idea of the current thing, right? So the current thing, at least for me, I heard that, and immediately I knew what it meant. It meant somehow you've been talking with everybody, and you felt like you knew what was going on, and then somehow everybody's talking about the same thing, a thing you hadn't heard about before, everybody agrees, um, and you're not quite sure where it all came from. And I feel like that's what happened with a lot of people with woke stuff, um, using the term without defining it, that starting maybe a decade ago or a little more, uh, it started to be that people were expressing these opinions, uh, not clear where they got them. Uh, early on, it was could have been things about um, emotional labor or the, the gender pay gap or mansplaining or manspreading, um, things like that. Then it got into you know Black Lives Matter and things like that. Um, and a lot of these things are very different from each other. Some of them concern kind of one-on-one interactions. Some of them concern national politics or even international politics. Um, some of them concern just like, you know, implicit bias. That's kind of just like things that are going on in our heads that we don't even know about. Right. So there's a wide range of possible topics. Some of them have material consequences. Some of them have political consequences. Some of them don't really have any consequences at all. Really. They're just kind of about the state of our souls. And it's, I think it's, it's almost hard to figure out how to mount an argument that these things all kind of go together in some natural way. So if somebody were to you're just say, there's no like uh, underlying ideology there, it's just what you're supposed to believe without much principle. Yeah. So I, I, I think that to me, I look at all those things. I say, if you kind of were to, were to make a chart, they would all be kind of growing at the same time. They would all be kind of going together the same people would be believing a lot of them at the same time. And the same people would be disbelieving a lot of them at the same time. Right. Um, so that to me suggests that there's, that there's some sort of trend in people's thinking that there's some sort of, uh, broad pattern. Yeah. Uh, that this stuff is involved in. I, um, the, the example that always jumps out at me was like 2014, 2015, I think was the peak for, the present thing to be discussion of, of misogyny. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were, there's Elliot Roger, there were, there've been a couple of horrible incidents or attacks that have at least some connection to misogyny. What was fascinating to me, um, I shouldn't say fascinating because it was horrible, but after the Atlanta spa shooting, it came out that that guy had some deep seated psychological thing about sex workers. He had shame mm-hmm. intermixed with misogyny, and there was just there was just no evidence to suggest the idea that he specifically targeted Asians, except they happened right. to be who, who worked in that industry. Um, and it's just this is the sort of weird floaty feeling about it. Is I know if that story happened in 2014, every media outlet in unison would have made it mm-hmm. about misogyny in mm-hmm. 2021 or 2020. I forget what year. 
the current thing was anti-Asian racism, so that's what it had to be about. And there's just there seems to be very little connection to the facts of the case. It's just like the the idea floating in the air among the sort of people who report and write about stuff is what dictates what things are about. If that makes is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, that, that's completely what I'm getting at. And I you know I think one thing that one thing that comes out of what you're saying that I think is so interesting is that there's not like within wokeness, there are these like patterns and even, you know, a person who acts woke or writes woke stuff might not have woke beliefs. A person who has woke beliefs might not, you know, act woke. Um, and so somebody who's completely self-interested, right. Who doesn't really buy into any of this stuff, but is just trying to kind of, you know, sell papers or sell their takes or whatever, right? Maybe a freelance writer or something like that. They're going to look around and they're going to say, like, what's hot right now, right? At, you know, at some point it might be, it might be feminism. At another point, it might be, uh, you know, more this other gender stuff. You know, non-binary, trans stuff. Um, at another point, it might be anti-black racism. At another point, it might be anti-Asian racism, right? And so there's always these frames that kind of come and go. Um, and I guess, you know, the thing that unites them, certainly the relationship to identity politics is basically constant. Um, so the fact that woke frames almost always seem to have something to do with uh, a marginalized group and that marginalization not really being, you know, class or material oriented, right? It's, 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 uh, some kind of ideological demographic superstructure. Yeah. Um, that is certainly a constant of, of any woke, you know, anything that comes up in these areas. Yeah. I've, I've tried to, um, and let's, let's take E's call in a minute, but I, I've tried to, um, if people press me on like, what do you mean by woke? I'll just try to like zoom in on individual features. So I think what you're getting at with the identity politics often manifests as um, identitarian deference. Like in liberal yeah. communities, the norm is that you defer to whoever is more oppressed. And this really has mm -hmm. taken over certain spaces. And I'd much rather say, okay, let's unpack that. Do you really mean that? How do you define more as who is more oppressed? And, and writers like Matt Bruning and Freddie DeBoer have done a good job at that. I try to focus more on those like specific features of our landscape than you know, what's woke, what's anti-woke, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it seems like impossible to... And you know, I do appreciate when... There are some people who, who, who try to characterize like the entire thing at the same time. Like, you know, this is all wokeness. I guess Wesley kind of does that. Um, but I don't really see exactly any ideology like that is going to have so much diversity within it. And it's going to go through so many changes. I don't really see how it's possible to mount, like, my job, I view my job as a philosopher and a public philosopher. I'm just kind of like a crafter of arguments, right? I come up yeah. with arguments. I analyze other people's arguments. Boutique really artisanal awesome. arguments. Yeah, exactly. Artisanal arguments. That's all that it's about for me. And so without having, without having some more specific target, um, it's really hard to know, um, what the nature of the argument is supposed to be. Yeah. I think some people think if you just point out the phenomenon, right? If you just say, look, have you noticed that your, your beliefs change without the world changing, right? Like you just seem to go along with what a lot of other people are doing. 
maybe that'll be enough if you just kind of point out that to people and they notice it and they recognize it. Maybe that'll be enough to convince some people. But that's not really what I'm interested in either. I'm not, I don't view myself as at all a political actor. I'm not trying to convince anybody on the sidelines. I'm not trying to change any electoral outcome or I'm not even trying to change institutional outcomes within organizations like the American Philosophical Association or even my home philosophy department or anything like that. I'm basically trying to mount arguments that I think will be compelling or at least challenging to the people who really are on the other side, right? Yeah. People who really do disagree with me. And so, yeah, identitarian deference is one, right? The idea that, um, so in this book draft I'm doing, um, I talk a bit about standpoint epistemology. So you have this deference is something we usually give to experts. So the idea is basically, you know, marginalized people are going to be experts on issues related to their marginalization. Because of, um, of their lived experience, which is another important term. Yeah, because of their lived experience. And it just it's a little hard. You know, people try and figure out exactly how you could generate this sort of expertise, but it's it's pretty hard to see. Um, so th- there's a few accounts of it out there, but they seem – they have the kind of vibe. I'm kind of all about vibes these days. Vibes are um, huge. So they have the kind of vibe of being like, we came up with the theory – and then we were looking for the justification, right? Rather than like we had a we had a, a good reason prior to the theory to think that this might be the case. I might that this expertise, the kind of expertise, might obtain. Let's get to E. I might hit you up after. For I've always been interested in the standpoint of epistemology. Yeah, I yeah, might yeah. Hit you up for some papers. E. Unmute yourself. Sorry for the, the wait. No problem. Can you hear yes. me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I've been reading uh, Yasha Monk's uh, book this week. Um, I'm kind of interested. It's, it's the idea of how to make diverse democracies healthier or even healthy to begin with. And uh, one of the things that uh, was striking me was it was talking about the danger of fragmentation and then also uh, the concept of uh, the contact hypothesis, that if you have conditions right and have people in contact with each other in the right way, then that's uh, probably the best way to promote mutual understanding. And so I couldn't help but think that's that's a big concern of mine that uh, um, with all the discourse over Twitter, because I, I feel like over time, as the Overton window of Twitter is significantly to the left of the average American, uh, more people are kind of banned. And so then you have these rise of these alternative platforms, you know, we had Parler, and then there's Getter and uh, I mean, I'm a gender critical feminist ish. There's even a GC Twitter called Spinster. And so you have all these enclosed sort of fragmented now communities online rather than everyone sort of mm-hmm. in the same space. And, you know, maybe that's better in the short term because Twitter tends to make conversations toxic. And so maybe the contact between groups now is actually worse than if you just keep them all separate. But I'm pretty convinced that in the long term for the health of democracies, you kind of need to promote a healthier space that everyone can talk with each other about things. And so one of the things I ha- questions I had for Jesse was this contact hypothesis. I mean, it, it tracks well with my experience. It's simple. It's nice. And that also kind of rings alarm bells, uh, you know, with your quick fix. Yeah. So I was wondering if you knew things about that in like, how likely it is to be true. <laughs> I, I wrote an article in, I think, 2016 that was pretty sympathetic to it. My sense is, um, I 
and and I I know this because I reread his review of Jason Stanley. Oliver's up on the replication crisis too. I don't think the the contact hypothesis has fared particularly poorly amidst the replication crisis. I think the problem is that for it to work, a lot of conditions have to be in place that might not be in place in the real world. So the hypothesis basically says if you have people from different groups uh, with a shared goal operating on equal footing uh, where there's sort of uh, support from the authorities for for intermixing um, that that reduces intergroup tension I think that's like fairly well backed up the problem is like in 2022 I wouldn't I basically wouldn't vouch for any social psychological <laughs> finding um, Ollie is this something you've looked into in particular if not it's no big deal I haven't looked into it in particular, but I will say that in terms of just tracking the, like, whatever you call it, the anti-woke, IDW, whatever it is, discourse, heterodox, viewpoint diversity, whatever you want to call it, um, this was a big thing in, like, 2016, 2017. Everybody was kind of like, we just, you know, we need to get people talking to each other more. We need more exchange of viewpoints. And then I think after a couple of years of saying that, we really took a close look at what does it look like in like America right now, you know, 2018, whatever year it was, when people who have these deep fundamental political disagreements exchange viewpoints? Um, and I think a lot of people started to think maybe it actually makes them uh, hate each other more. Um, so maybe these conditions Jesse was talking about weren't actually in place. I think I think um, you're, on Twitter, I think that's absolutely right. And Twitter yeah, is like the so opposite Twitter, of the conditions least, you'd want. Right. Yeah, you see all these dunks, the quote tweets, you know, you see the the screenshots, the the threads, you know, people are always making these like 50 tweet threads about Jesse that are just like, how can you, you know, think that much about, you know, <laughs> I've, I've been in like multi-year romantic relationships where I haven't thought about the other person as much <laughs> as some people think about Jesse, right? Thank you. Um, and uh, so this, so this seems to be part of what happens when you have a lot of this contact. So Although I don't know much about the social science standing, but I do know that within this used to be the suggestion we would make. We just need to get people talking to each other. You know, progressives need to be willing to open up their doors and talk to more conservatives and stuff. And it turned out that when people opened up their doors and talked to each other, that didn't necessarily solve the problem. And sometimes it made it work. So that was kind of an L, I would say, for to an extent for the anti-woke left, because we had this nice easy solution that we could talk about kind of condescendingly, but turned out that it wasn't really all that was going on. The only, uh, thank you for the call. That's a really good question. Uh, I'm going to take Paul in a sec. Um, the only thing I would say is that I, I still feel a kernel of hope that like, if you sat down a trans activist with a gender critical activist and they were sharing a meal and there was no audience and it was off the record, I think a lot of the time people don't, disagree as much as they think they do. And I have noticed a chronic inability in both of our Twitter communities. Um, people are completely incapable of accurately understanding the views of their opponents. And it goes both ways. I mean, this goes with like, you know, I'm fairly skeptical of some of the youth gender medicine stuff, but you, you'll see people act like there's just parents out there who want to sterilize their kids, who want to trans yeah. their kids. Yeah. And it's, obviously, whatever's going on is a lot more complicated than that. So um, mm -hmm. do, do you maintain my kernel of hope that if you could somehow engineer the exact ideal conditions, there's there's some – this could help? Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree with that. And one-on-one, -on -one, I honestly feel like 
all, often all I need is to talk to someone one-on-one. And you even get these things, you know, Freddie writes about this a lot. Sometimes you talk to somebody one-on-one and it's like, oh, we understand each other, we get it. And then when they go back to performing in, in, in front of Twitter or for some other kind of crowd, then they're back to shitting on you, right? Yeah, Freddie DeBoer so, said he had like a nice, in, I forget if it was in person or online, but a one-on-one sort of intimate, for lack of a better word, conversation with someone and realize they didn't he- hate each other, then the person goes right back to dunking on him on Twitter, which is... Yeah, like, so uh, I, I think that the, the, on Twitter, you have to be... Um, you know, it's funny, there were, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get to the next no, comment in just a second, but I wanted to mention... I went, I, I went to this philosophy conference where somebody presented a, a philosophical analysis of subtweeting, um, <laughs> which had a lot of interesting stuff in it, where it kind of positioned subtweeting as kind of like a, a form of innuendo, kind of like flirtation, where there's kind of this plausible deniability. But one thing that they said that was somebody who had been subtweeted on Twitter but wasn't a Twitter user. They said something like, um, there's a, you know, subtweeting is highly incentivized by the Twitter algorithm. And I thought that was just completely wrong. Uh, what, or by the Twitter, you know, Twitter social norms or whatever. What's really incentivized by Twitter social norms is the opposite. It's taking people on directly, yeah, right? Okay. It's causing some sort of drama, some sort of fight. And um, those incentives are going to be there, even if you have great one-on-one conversation with someone, right? The incentives to just dunk, to quote tweet, um, and to, you know, to try to get into one of these brawls. Yeah, definitely. Paul, what's up? Hey, guys. Um so I guess my question is uh, mostly for Oliver. So um, I guess I should preface this by saying I'm a fellow philosopher, while well, philosophy PhD. I'm uh, currently out of the field for various reasons, most of them personal. Um, but my question is, so to what extent do you think philosophy, say in, I don't know, 20 years, will be a respectable discipline anymore? Um <laughs> So, I, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really going to define what I mean by respectable discipline, but both you and I probably, you know, share certain perceptions about philosophy, um, uh, you know, as being fairly rigorous. You know, one of the reasons why we got in it, uh, ostensibly truth seeking to some extent. Um, you know, on the one hand, I'm I'm encouraged because I get a sense that a majority of of philosophers are probably, um, you know, kind of like us where we, you know, see the value of, of good scholarship and, and want to pursue that and continue that. And, you know, so what's my evidence for this? Well, you talk to most people in the field, they're not particularly, um, you know, sometimes it takes a couple drinks to to get into this, but they're you know they're not particularly enamored with some of the social justice stuff. Um, you look at you know daily news comments if you're counting likes versus you know for certain posts written by David Wallace or whatever uh, that's kind of encouraging. You know, there's still a large amount of scholarship <laughs> yeah. in the top journals that's pretty rigorous. Um, that's a good you know, that's a good question. So Oliver, do you, do you have hope yeah. that 20 years from now some of the Craziness will die down. Not just hope. I, I'm asking for a prediction. Yeah, so I, I definitely. Uh-oh, Oliver, we're losing your signal a little bit. Say, um, say I do again. think a lot of those people will stick around, and I do think that there's the silent majority. And I get emails, you know, I've gotten emails. Hmm. Oliver, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? 
Yeah, say that again. You think a lot of those people still? Yeah, around? so yeah, I was uh, I was saying yeah, a lot of those people still exist, and I think they still will exist in twenty years. Um, I think that so the rigorous stuff in philosophy is not easy, right? And it's not always clear what the payoff is unless you have this like really this real interest in not even the truth, right? Because nobody it's very rare to actually have a philosophical theory that is going to be compelling to a lot of people. And so it's very rare to actually have a lot of justification for your philosophical beliefs. So you have to be motivated by some kind of not something other than truth, some kind of just like making these very small incremental changes to our understanding of, you know, fundamental things about the world and about human reasoning and things like that. Um, and I think that's pretty rare and it's especially rare to want to put in all the effort it takes to understand this, you know, thousands and thousands of years of work that's come before and the, the highly technical work that people are doing in philosophy now. So I do think those people will still exist, but if something easier is more rewarding than something hard, uh, that's always going to be, and people are just always going to be incentivized towards the easy thing. And people in academia are always going to be looking for low-hanging fruit and in, in hot new areas. Um, you, you see this inside and outside of the political stuff. Um, and it's part of, like, a lot of what I publish on is, you know, again, taking contrarian stance. Hey, someone throw me a thumbs up emoji if you guys lost Oliver too. Hey, can you still hear me? I, I feel like whenever I get a call, I should have turned my calling off. I keep getting yeah, okay. calls. Um, so yeah, there are these hot new topics and uh, whether you're in favor of them or against them, it's sort of easier to write on them. There's a lot less literature. The work is a lot less technical. Um, and so that's always where the incentives are going to be sending people. So I think that's always going to exist, but I think there's, in 20 years, I do still think there's going to be a hardcore of people who are, are really, really thinking about metaphysics and epistemology and philosophy of language and philosophy of mind and philosophy of science. Um, I don't think those people are going to be, are going to disappear entirely. And I do think that um, my personal belief is that woke stuff will have faded by then that we'll be on to, to something new, you know, who knows what it is, maybe much worse. Um <laughs> And so I think it's pretty hard for me to predict exactly what's going to be going on in philosophy in 20 years. But uh, I do think that kind of hardcore of real aficionados will remain and the other folks very, really hard to predict what it'll look like. We're going to pine for the days of wokeness when like the neo reactionaries take over or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you, Paul. Patrick, what is up? Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, hey, Oliver. Love the Notre Dame. Um, so I have a question for Oliver uh, about kind of, I guess, the future of uh, new kind of woke or new kind of philosophies. So back when I was at Notre Dame and doing a gender studies major, some of the stuff that like Judith Butler, for instance, was stuff that was being taught at this at the time, but it was about created about 10 years in the past. And we're now seeing it kind of take over modern spaces. Is there anything kind of trending in philosophy or other kind of fields right now that isn't really known about, but you think is going to be kind of uh, the new hot ticket uh, in about 20 years? You, you mean um, politically, like in, in this kind of, in, in gender studies or, you know, fields like that? 
Well, gender Religious studies, philosophy. Uh, uh, even like uh, like uh, philosophy and stuff. So I think uh, even like a couple years ago, like you started to see reductionism come out more into like popular fields. Uh, people coming out and like talking about it, whereas. Uh, that was more something that was just related to different kind of like scholars. Like you wouldn't hear anybody on Joe Rogan talking about what it's like to be a bat. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say things related to AI, I think are going to heat up um, as AI continues to improve. So you have AI, expla AI explainability. Um, that's just the question of, you know, you make some, you put together some neural net, you throw a lot of input at it. It has a bunch of layers. I don't really know all the terminology, but it starts to, you know, the more you train it, it the, the better it does, but you don't really understand why. So there's this question of how do we figure out exactly what an AI is doing? Um, and so there's questions about like scientific explanation uh, that go into that, the nature of inference, the nature of knowledge. Um, then there's AI ethics stuff. There's algorithmic bias. There's questions of, you know, do, do we owe anything to AIs? There's, military ethics related to AI about like drone, drone killings and stuff like that. So I think anything related to AI, the technology I think is going to continue improving. And so the philosophical interest is going to, is going to continue going up. Um, can, can I jump in? Also, oh, sorry, go ahead. Continue. Then I'll, I'll, I, I was just going to say, there's also the possibility that AI is just simply going to be able to write philosophy. And I think that that, you know, that affects any number of fields. The question of, you know, I've been playing around with the open AI playground and it's not really there yet, but it can do, it can do quite a few things. Um, if you tell it, you know, here's the music I like, it can give you recommendations and stuff like that. Um, and it can, you know, it instantly Googles any philosophical term and it can make arguments and it can tell you whether they're valid or invalid. So, you know, who knows in 20 years what the role of AI in philosophy will be as well as other fields. Um, so basically I would say in, in terms of something that could actually be really hot new topic and in other ways could actually change the field, I would say AI stuff, um, probably, probably more important, uh, in the long run than anything related to, to woke trends. That made me think of like what I wanted to ask you about the gender stuff, which is, it sounds like philosophers are at work on pretty practical questions about how we should approach AI and treat it, right? Uh, like this isn't all like yeah, deeply, least, deeply. Some people are. Yeah. Some people are. Yeah. I, I've always thought, tell me if you think this is fair, that like philosophers are sort of missing an opportunity in the gender moment because the, the claims made by the present orthodoxy, which is very new, like this was not stuff that anyone really knew about 10 years ago are that, like if someone says they are something, you have to accept that and you are doing them like a deep moral harm by not accepting that. And I, I have not really seen very many philosophers um, actually work through what that means or write about it in a way normal humans can understand. And I feel like it's actually – it should be a prime example of a place where philosophy can really do some good to advance our understanding. I guess my – my sort of theory is that it's just hard to do that when like an entire set of beliefs about this stuff are basically verboten unless you're like Alex Bine or Thomas Pagardis or Kathleen Stock and, and who wants to be them given how they're treated. Do you think I have yeah, the so, diagnosis yeah, so right? Verboten, you just see what happens to the people who, who express them. Um, yeah. So I, I do think that there's an opening, a lot of the work, you know, from, from both sides, a lot of the work on gender remains kind of technical um, and I think one of the reasons that 
Okay, now I'm going to say something that might be verboten myself. One of the reasons that I think philosophers haven't been able to do good public philosophy about this stuff is that it it isn't an issue that was sort of investigated by philosophers and then made its way out into the world, right? It was an issue that kind of came up as part of the, you know, to my mind, you know, okay, this is probably going to be, who knows, maybe this is what I'll get canceled for. But to my mind, in a lot of ways, consciousness of this issue uh, arose as, you know, early 2010s internet culture um, sped up on, you know, Tumblr and 4chan and other websites and Twitter. Yeah. Um, and so I think to a large extent, philosophers are kind of trying to, to an extent, capitalize on and to, not, to a different extent kind of give a, a, a foundation for ideas that they encountered, you know, well outside of philosophy. Yeah, no, I mean, if, um, as, a, as, as a, sorry, but as an outsider, it seems obvious that's what's happening is they already know the conclusion they have to arrive at, and they're trying to build a structure under that conclusion to prop it up rather than in a lot of this ever questioning the conclusion or complicating the conclusion. Yeah, and I think when, when that's what's going on, the public philosophy, it's hard to know exactly what the role of the public philosopher should be because to an extent, anybody anybody who's going to read that approvingly, you're going to be like, well, you know, they already knew it, right? Because they came up in the same culture I did, right? Um, so somebody who who came to believe um, a, a lot of these things about gender, you know, maybe starting a decade ago, and then became a philosopher, it's hard to know what the interest of their philosophical work is going to be to somebody who came to believe all these things uh, and then, you know, took on some other job, right? Um, so unless there's some kind of deep connection made with other aspects of philosophy, which sometimes there is, um, but unless there's some kind of deep connection made with other things, um, I don't think this kind of structure of how people's beliefs were formed necessarily lends itself well to public philosophy. And, in a, you know, in a lot of this stuff, right, think about, we use this word intuition in philosophy to just mean it's the way things seem to me, right? And to an extent, we're allowed to use our intuitions as evidence when we're forming arguments. It's something that, or at the very least, it's something that you have to contend with if there's intuitions that go against your, your philosophical theory. But if you take some of the gender stuff, right, like you ask, is this person a woman? Well, the the kind of trans rights people, they'll just say, yeah, I'm, I'm quite confident that person is a woman. That's my intuition. You ask the gender critical person, they, they just say, well, I'm quite confident that person isn't a woman, right? And so there's an extent to it, if all that's going on is this battle of intuitions, which, by the way, happens, you know, happens in other parts of philosophy too, right? And it's, it, to some extent, it, it all, it's always going on when we're trying to do metaphysics and figure out what, what's out there and what's fundamental in the world. Um, but at times it's hard to know. I'm not completely sure that the discourse has moved beyond people just being like really certain about a lot of these intuitions. Intuitions. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and they're not, and they're not, um, um, thank you, Patrick. I'm going to move on to the next caller in a minute. I, 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 
part of me almost thinks like feels like you're giving them too much credit in calling them intuitions because for a lot of them the social cost of not publicly proclaiming that belief is so high it feels like why would why would anyone bother and is there uh, professed belief in this really coming from a deep intuition versus just the sense that the cost of not professing it is too high or am I, or am I being too uncharitable? Yeah, I don't, I mean, of course that sort of thing is always possible. Um, uh, but you know, by the same token that you're not necessarily going to get something philosophically deep out of wondering who really has the, the, the true interactions either. Yeah, right. That's fair. Um, Johnny, go ahead. Hey, thanks, guys. Um, I'm working on a project, and uh, the project has to do with trying to try to figure out and find out the character of a nation. And I'm using uh, the father of presuppositional. Hey, we're having a lot of trouble with your audio. Can you hold okay. your mic closer? Yeah. Yeah. Hang on. Hang on. Let me do it this way. Okay. Is this better? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. So. I'm working on a project, and the project has to do with trying to find the character of a nature uh, of a nation. And my philosophical foundation is from uh, uh, a Christian philosopher pro prominent in the 1930s named Dr. Cornelius Van Til, who is called the father of presuppositional apologetics. So I've got a quote from uh, the contemporary geopolitician uh, John Mersheimer. And uh, John Mersheimer says, the problem with liberals... Liberals meaning uh, the focus on the individual, the West, right, as opposed to the focus on the collective, the East, right, that mm -hmm. government, that former government. So the the problem with liberals, liberals, he says, is that they can't come to first principles, right. So here's uh, here is part of the strategy, part of the the project, I guess, uh, is what I'm using. I think I have found, or I think we as a nation, we as a people, have actually come to that point. With uh, and and I've identified three questions and and this is, and I want your opinion on this. I want to see. What you hey, hey, I don't think we're going to be able to get to all three. Can you just um you know uh, distill it into a question for Oliver or you know? Okay, well, yeah. The question is, do you think that we've come to first principles? All right, so here yeah, it is. So here it is. Number one. Number one. Right. Number one. Uh, do you believe that we are a government of by and for the people? Number two. Do you believe that we deserve a vote on Medicare for all? And number three. Would you agree that the most powerful weapon those who are in power use against the people is a manipulation of the media? Now, could you give me your opinion on whether or not we as a nation have come to first principles as liberals? Yeah, good question. Um, so I guess uh, I, I don't I'm not familiar with the philosophy you're, you're drawing on. Um, but one one distinction that. Uh, contemporary liberals make is between uh, procedural and substantive liberalism. So, in procedural liberalism, procedural liberalism is simply about they say we don't want to we don't want to make any decisions about what we value, right? That's kind of communism and fascism. They're the ones who said, "Here's what's good. We're going to impose it kind of from the top down." These liberals say, "Well, that didn't turn out well, right? We want people to have freedom to be free to make their own choices, and so we're just kind of going to we're going to let people kind of make decisions about their values from the bottom up." And so that is the kind of view that I think could be associated with the idea that liberalism has no first principles. But there's also, there's also a possibility of a more substantive liberalism where we just say, well, look, like, 
freedom actually is a substantive value, right? It's not just a, this isn't just a procedure by which we come to make political decisions. It actually, we think the world is better when people don't feel constrained, right? When people don't feel like there's a lot of uh, pressure from their government or from other institutions to make them do things, right? It's just a value to, to not feel like you're under somebody's boot. It's a value to be able to speak your mind, right? And so I think that those sorts of things can be uh, first political principles, even though there's a problem with, um, there's a kind of tolerating the intolerant type problem that always comes up, where if you say, I have a really substantive theory of liberalism, uh, but that substantive theory says you're, you're perfectly allowed to disagree with liberalism, um, then it kind of becomes this toothless uh, entity liberalism does. So it's not, it's not, um, there's a lot of theoretical problems for liberalism. Um, and I do think a lot of people worry that it doesn't really commit itself to any values and therefore it's kind of easily, easily taken over or easily manipulated. Um, I think we're in an interesting post-liberal moment, both, uh, on the left and on the right. There's a lot of people writing about liberalism, but I also think that, um, there remains space for liberal theorists to make, to kind of improve on their, their theoretical arguments, um, and to, to counter some of these ideas. So, uh, I'm not yet ready to abandon, uh, liberalism as theory or as practice. Does that make sense, Johnny? All right. Uh, let's go to Rogs. Jamal said he had a question about my book. So I'm going to leave that to the end. Sounds good. Raj, Rogs, Raj, what's up? All right. Uh, Jamal, what's up? Man, we're having some mic issues. All right. Uh, Jamal, I'll give you one more chance. I believe in forgiveness. There we go. Yeah, no, I can uh, even tell the difference between the hang-up button and the mute button with only two tries. <laughs> Oliver, thank you very much for uh, coming on today. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I uh, found a lot of this fascinating. Thank you. Um, I have, like, a whole bunch of questions I'd love to ask you, but since we're closing in on time... Uh, yeah, feel free to DM me, me at any time. I appreciate that. Um, it won't be in the next uh, month, though, because I am taking a break from the Internet. I approve of that. Good idea. Jesse, yep. uh, yeah, yeah, you got to take a vacation sometimes. Um, but that brings me to a practical question for you, Jesse. Um, I just want to make sure I understand something about book publishing correctly. Um, the author of a book makes no money whatsoever off of uh, used books, right? You only get compensated for... Uh, yeah, I assume so. I mean, it, it really... I don't know. I, I assume I'm making no money off used books, but for, in my case, it was like the. It's all, also you might not make money off of sold books until you uh, cover your advance, so it's complicated. But I, I assume I don't make money off used books in most settings now. That's true, but I guess um, if somebody could afford to have three uh, books he wanted to buy, um, and he could either buy three used books or buy one book. Uh, brand new um, and get two from the library, it's only the uh, second course of action that would uh, help support the author, right? 
new 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 books bought or if you request your library to buy it if you don't would both help yeah oh yeah fair enough um yeah. but it's, it's better to buy one book um at full price than a three uh used books yeah but it, it doesn't i i would rather anyone uh, three well, copies well, of my book in circulation would be better than one copy so i it doesn't i don't have a strong preference on this to be honest um, oh, and finally, uh, could you pick a number between uh, one and six, please? Four. Okay, hold on. Okay, uh, pretend you're Freddy DeBoer and pick another number. Two. All right. Uh, yeah, um, I'm looking. Thanks again for your time, Oliver. I appreciate it. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys again in a month or so. Thanks, Jamal. Good luck yeah, with your networks. Um, I'm worried I just like subjected myself to some sort of ancient curse or something by giving those numbers. Yes. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time, Ollie. Anything you want to, any other parting observations or anything else you wanted to say? Uh, no, just uh, if anybody was listening to this and can't and wants to cancel me, just like uh, go ahead. I'll set up my Patreon. It'll all be yeah. good. Canceled for truth, at, at canceled life. for truth or whatever. Uh, no, but do check yeah, out exactly. not only his Twitter feed, but he, he's written a lot of really good stuff. Um, I, I'm consistently impressed with your work, and I'm Thanks. glad I got to talk to you. What's your Twitter account one more time? Yeah, it's at Oliver Trolley, uh, just O L I V E R T R A L D I. Hope to see everybody there. Are you coming to do uh, Heterodox or no? Uh, yeah, I'll see you in Denver. Awesome, man. Everyone else, come to Heterodox Academy. We're doing a live podcast taping. Uh, Thank you, Oliver. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. As always, I would just ask you to spread the word if you like the show, if you like my work. That's how I uh, pay the bills, get people to listen to me ramble about nonsense and occasionally talk to people smarter than me like Oliver. Have a good day, everyone. Bye.